Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifesteringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifestering Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. From Victory to Defeat, China's Socialist Road and Capitalist Reversal, by Pao Yuqing. Preface, J. Mufawad Paul. When I was approached to write a preface for this book, I was, by one of those strange coincidences that idealists believe are more significant than they actually are, rereading Rethinking Socialism, which Pao Yuqing co-authored with Deng Huan Su, in 1998. I had assigned selections from that extended essay in a course I was teaching and was preparing my reading notes. The request for this preface, then, came right at the moment when I was being struck with the clarity of Ching's thought in her 2017 introduction of the second edition of Rethinking Socialism, which I was only just reading. Such clarity would also be recognized by my students the best of whom found her reframing of the question of, quote, socialist failure, unquote, as, quote, socialist defeat, unquote, refreshing, and despite only being assigned selections, avidly consumed the entire work. I assigned this text in a course about the philosophy of Marxism and post-Marxism following a constellation of philosophical works, encouraging students to engage with a work of recent radical political economy in relation to the more abstract texts they had spent weeks reading. The above anecdote might explain why a philosopher such as myself is writing an introduction to a book that is ostensibly a work of political economy. Ching's work generates categorical distinctions that demand philosophical investigation. Since my training is not in political economy but in philosophy, my appreciation of Ching's work functions according to a philosophical register. That is, I am interested in the ways in which she uses the categories of political economy to draw clear demarcations in thought so as to force important decisions in the thinking and practice of politics. As a Marxist, I am of the opinion that political economy is useful for demystifying its object of analysis with the intention of demanding revolutionary transformation. This is what Marx did, after all, when he left the realm of abstract philosophy and entered the battleground of bourgeois economic theory. The Marxist political economist ought to understand what is at stake in their work, that economic perspectives are determined by class struggle and thus be able to establish the revolutionary standpoint. The practice of philosophy is useful insofar as it can compare differing attempts to establish such a standpoint and clarify the reasons why one position is better than another. Which is all to say that I've been drawn to Ching's work, as I have been drawn to the work of political economists such as Samir Amin, because its concern with the practice of making revolution has always rendered it clear and thus philosophically salient. Therefore, my prefatory comments will be a small philosophical intervention designed to think about this new work of Ching's 
according to the larger concerns of the Marxist terrain. To interpret its meaning in the context of what all intellectual labor within this terrain should be about, revolution, socialist transformation, and the road to communism. Ching's work to date. Those readers already familiar with Ching's contributions to date and who are reading from Victory to Defeat, China's Socialist Road and Capitalist Reversal because of her past work, can skip ahead since you can probably guess what I'm about to write by way of introduction. But if you are a reader who is encountering Ching for the first time, then I feel it is necessary to introduce her main concerns, the primary object of her critical thought, so that you can appreciate this book in relation to her total project. Generally speaking, Ching's work has been about examining the defeat of socialism in the last great world historical revolution, the Chinese Revolution, unveiling the meaning of revisionism to think through the problematic of socialist transformation. By examining the line struggle in the Chinese Revolution and the eventual victory of the Liu Dang line, Ching has not only sought to establish key insights about what socialism as a process for generating communism should be, she has also revealed the ways in which the revisionism encountered in the course of such a process can be known. That is, she has rigorously exposed the meaning of both a socialist and revisionist political economy, the latter of which leads to capitalist restoration and the defeat of socialism by waving the red flag to bring down the red flag. Before From Victory to Defeat, there are two books available in English, along with numerous articles, which form the sequence of Ching's thought. The first of these books is Rethinking Socialism, co-authored with Deng Wansu, which focused on the question of socialist transition in the light of China's Great Reversal. The second is Revolution and Counter-Revolution, which examined the capitalist road taken by China and the struggles waged in the pursuit of this road. Finally, in her essay, The Current Phase of Imperialism in China, Qing outlined China's imperialist ambitions in contrast to its socialist past. Now we have From Victory to Defeat, China's Socialist Road and Capitalist Reversal, which is the most focused expose to date on what the revisionist Liu Dang Road has wrought upon a social formation that was at one point of time the highest expression of socialist transition. Such an exposure not only demonstrates how the path of socialist transition can be compromised and reversed, it also reveals what is at stake and teaches us what needs to be done so as to rigorously pursue communism. Moreover, From Victory to Defeat picks up where Qing left off with her 2017 introduction to Rethinking Socialism. The aforementioned necessity of thinking of the capitalist reversal as the result of a, quote, defeat, unquote, rather than a, quote, failure, unquote, of socialism, the importance of rejecting Eurocentric Marxist orthodoxy regarding the, quote, failure, unquote, of socialist revolutions, i.e., the problem was that these revolutions happened in, quote, backwards, unquote, modes of productions, rather than progressing from a developed capitalism with a proper bourgeois proletariat class structure, exemplified in the work of authors such as Ellen Mikesons Wood. From Victory to Defeat, China's Socialist Road and Capitalist Reversal As with any text, it is always important to first understand what the text is in order to assess its merits. 
For example, if a book intended to teach readers how to play chess did not adequately accomplish its intentions, we would say that it is not a very good book. Those defending it as excellent because it possessed a decent chapter on the history of the game would not have a very good argument regarding the book's overall worth because the book as a whole did not fulfill what it sought to accomplish. So what is Pao Yuching's From Victory to Defeat, China's Socialist Road and Capitalist Reversal? First of all, it is not a work of descriptive political economy regarding both China's socialist past and its current present. Or rather, it is not simply a work of descriptive political economy. It does indeed describe the political economic orders of China from the Mao period to the present, and definitely proves the revisionist distance between the two. But this description is not primarily about description. But From Victory to Defeat is not intended to be merely such a work. Secondly, it is not merely a historiography of China from the time of Mao Zedong to Xi Jinping. That is, its intention is not to simply present us with a historical narrative. Counter to both the Western bourgeois and Chinese revisionist historical narratives, of the revisionist fall from grace that Chinese socialism experienced, the decades-long capitalist road upon which the way station of Xi's government has been built. Not that constructing such an historical counter-narrative is not important, nor can we discount the fact that Qing significantly contributes to this counter-narrative with this book. But if we treated from victory to defeat as merely a work of revolutionary counter-history about contemporary China, we would again miss out on what it intends to be through its discussion on Chinese history. Then what is Qing's From Victory to Defeat, China's Socialist Road and Capitalist Reversal? It is a political intervention using the tools of political economy and historiography that lays out the case for the necessity of communist revolution. The frame of China's contemporary history is significant because the Chinese revolution was the most recent world historical revolution, the current conjecture remains within its shadow, despite those Marxists who would pretend otherwise, and thus excavating the meaning of how its socialist construction was reversed is a warning of the obstacles that any potential socialist state will face. Figuring out how to establish such socialisms in the shadow cast by the Chinese Revolution, though, is an immediate necessity according to Qing. After all, she begins this book with a description of the capitalist nightmare and proclaims, in the opening paragraphs, the antinomy of, quote, socialism or barbarism, unquote, referencing both Engels and Luxembourg, which I have also argued should be the way to think the communist necessity, and neither myself nor Qing are alone in this insight. It is the thought of all communists and communist projects that seek to demarcate themselves from business as usual. Hence, from victory to defeat, demarcates the pursuit of socialism from revisionism, using the tools of political economy and historiography to explicate this demarcation, and thus delineates itself from Eurocentric approaches, as well as those approaches that seek to naturalize so-called, quote, actually existing socialism, unquote. The point is to learn from the distance between the most recent world historical revolution and its reversal in order to understand how to establish socialism now and be prepared for its pitfalls. Descriptive political economy and radical historiography are tools, and tools used very well, to accomplish this intervention. 
But the point is the intervention and the lines of demarcation it necessitates. Although there are many lessons Qing draws from the experience of the Chinese Revolution in the course of her intervention, I will examine only three points of interest that differentiate the socialist road from the capitalist road. These are the points that are foundational to an anti-revisionist understanding of making communism. The first point is that socialist construction, just like the revolution that brings about a dictatorship of the proletariat, is not a dinner party. Mobilizing the masses to transform all aspects of society requires a great amount of creativity and foresight, as well as scientific wherewithal, to produce the kind of economy, state, and culture that moves us towards a needs-based society. The revolution must continue at all levels of social existence and also must advance according to communist ideology. It must be, as the old slogan went, both red and expert. The second point is that class struggle continues under socialism, a fact that Mao originally made clear, and that Maoism has declared a universal principle, but one that Qing demonstrates is empirically correct through her examination of the rise and fall of the Chinese Revolution. Socialism is fragile. Its construction and persistence can always be compromised, and factions within the Communist Party itself can defeat the revolutionary line and reorient society toward the capitalist road. Such a defeat often happens by, quote, waving the red flag to bring down the red flag, unquote. That is, by using socialist-sounding language to enact anti-socialist reforms. This book contains snapshots of how that struggle was borne out, how socialism was constructed through this struggle, and how it was eventually defeated when the revisionists began to win this class struggle under socialism. A corollary to the second point is that socialism is not merely a word or a vague notion, but a meaningful concept. We can know what social formations are socialist, or pursuing socialism, by knowing what socialism is, just as we can know, by the same token, the meaning of its opposite. Such a conception of socialism was thoroughly worked out in Rethinking Socialism, but operates in this book as well, demonstrated by the differences between China's Mao and Dang eras. The third point is that even when a socialist revolution is defeated, if it has advanced far enough down the road to communism before the revisionist detour, and the Chinese revolution, as Qing demonstrates here, advance further than any other socialist revolution to date, then the legacy of socialism will remain and will be difficult to stamp out. This is because the masses, who were mobilized to construct socialism, remained mobilized, and the memory of this mobilization persists and is being passed down to successive generations. Every stage of capitalist reform in China has been forced to proceed against the masses' interest and was a struggle for the capitalist rotors to establish. The final sections in this book that examine the Chinese anti-revisionist left today demonstrate that the legacy of the Chinese Revolution and the GPCR is a living memory for workers, peasants, and radical students. Even defeated revolutions do not easily die. When the masses are mobilized, they understand when they are betrayed. This third point returns us to the importance of understanding that socialism was defeated rather than failed. For if socialism was an abject failure, then there would not be significant forces and struggles in formerly socialist countries coding themselves according to a doctrine of failure. 
For why would anyone raise the banner of, quote, the God that failed, unquote? Failure teaches those who failed that their way of doing things was erroneous. As liberal pundits who blather on about China like to presume, resemble that faction of students in Tiananmen Square who were advocating for USA-American-style capitalism rather than the workers and peasants, in the same event, who were raising the banner of Mao and demanding a return to the Cultural Revolution. Indeed, both Western pundits and the Chinese government ignored the larger rebellion in Tiananmen, framing it around the neoliberal student groups. Neither the Western media nor the Chinese government wanted to admit, though for oppositional reasons, that there was a socialist element to the rebellion. For if socialism was defeated rather than simply failed, it remains a live option, a vital legacy. Demarcating Communism When I began reading this book, I had just finished reading the manuscript of the soon-to-be-published science fiction novella and Shao Machine's Surrender by my friend, occasional analogical inspiration, and sometimes collaborator, Benjamin Sibun Kao. In that space opera novella, a distant future Dyson Sphere utopia is named after Shenzhen, the special economic zone that Qing examines as paradigmatic to China's capitalist reform. What struck me was that the distance between Sibun Kao's fictional Shenzhen Sphere and the actual Shenzhen was also the distance between the revisionist Marxist-Leninist delirium of, quote, market socialism, unquote, and its reality. The science fiction, intergalactic Shenzhen, possessed the stability and lack of poverty that the real Shenzhen does, not since the latter has functioned to destabilize socialism and generate impoverishment. Those, quote, Marxists, unquote, who maintain that China is socialist have a notion of post-Mao reform that is akin to imagining future Dyson spheres. That is, they have a completely fantastic and fictional understanding of reality. I would like to hope that some of them would read Ching's book and change their perspective, that they would grasp the fictional and fantastical basis of their previous conceptions. But I am also aware of the strength of revisionist ideology, since it is the long shadow cast by capitalist ideology. But for those readers who want to learn from the actual lessons of the Chinese Revolution, if there is a single lesson that we can derive from this book, it is that socialism, as well as its communist destination, is indeed a live option and vital legacy. Ching presents us with a choice regarding the meaning of socialism. Do we see it as simply a name that is meaningful insofar as it is attached to a number of actually existing regimes? Or do we understand it as a concept that spills beyond this act of simplistic naming? Is socialism merely a formality, or does it possess real content? The antinomy does not imply that Qing, like so many academic Marxists, is trapped in the dilemma of rejecting the great socialist experiments because they do not resemble an ideal notion of socialism that exists only in the imagination of Marx's purists. She rejects this interpretation as well. Her understanding of socialist transition grants that there were socialist revolutions. Her distinction between name and concept and form and content is not an idealist exercise that bans all real-world attempts of making socialism to the realm of the a priori doomed because they fail to satisfy some vague notion of Marxist puritanism. She has already told us that there were socialist formations, and there are reasons that they can qualify as such, 
but the reason they did not persist was because they were defeated. In the end, the line Pao Yuching draws between the name-slash-concept and form-slash-content of socialism is also the line drawn between revisionism-slash-anti-revisionism and counter-revolution-slash-revolution. If we want to even begin to think communism, then this is precisely the line that needs to be demarcated. J. Mufawad Paul Introduction Today, an overwhelming majority of people are struggling to survive from day to day or month to month. They face a bleak and hopeless future. The discontent of the masses of people has reached the highest since any time post-World War II. Since the end of the war, imperialist countries have gone through many rounds of reform. Political representatives of the capitalists, such as the Social Democrats, made repeated promises for a better society, which were then broken and their memories faded away. Since the late 1970s, after the latest neoliberal restructuring of the global capitalist system, the world capitalist system has gone through severe crises in the 1980s, 1990s, with the worst crisis in 2008 through 2009, which has lasted for an entire decade. Today, the living conditions of the working masses in imperialist countries have grown increasingly difficult. Labor productivity has increased substantially, but workers' wages have stagnated and benefits continue to decline. At the same time, for most working people, jobs have become more precarious as more workers are employed on a temporary and part-time basis. Yet the basic cost of living, such as rent, food, utilities, and other necessities of life has continued to rise, resulting in an accumulation of debt for workers and their families. Meanwhile, the dominant capitalists, a tiny percent of the population, has accumulated an almost unimaginable amount of wealth and are living obscenely lavish lives. Moreover, the suffering of people in colonial and semi-colonial countries has worsened. On top of many years of colonial rule, Imperialist powers have continued their political and economic domination even after people in these countries fought and won their, quote, independence, unquote. The dream of the national bourgeoisie in these countries in the early post-war years to develop capitalism independently has been resoundingly smashed after the crises in 1982 through 85 and then in 1997 through 99. After rounds of restructuring by global monopoly capital, Assisted by international financial institutions such as the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, and the World Bank, or WB, these countries went through rounds of austerity programs to cut public health and education, already severely underfunded. The Structural Adjustment Program, or SAP, imposed by the IMF on these debt-ridden countries, demanded financial deregulation and privatization in order to facilitate the takeover of these assets by foreign capital. Labor reform programs force these countries to keep their labor market flexible, including longer working hours, lowered wages, and relaxed restrictions on other working conditions, as well as prevention of labor organizing. Even before the latest global neoliberal restructuring, colonial and semi-colonial countries had never established political or economic sovereignty. 
After the neoliberal restructuring, they had little choice but to accept the conditions demanded by global monopoly capital, because their hope to develop their own economies no longer existed. They have since opened their borders for imports of foreign capital and commodities, including basic food, and have joined the new global division of labor by exporting products produced by cheap labor via the global supply chain. The appetite of monopoly capital is insatiable. It must assert control over all aspects of people's lives in order to gain a, quote, competitive advantage, unquote, over its rivals. Global monopoly capital has taken further steps to deprive people in colonial and semi-colonial countries the ability to produce goods for their own consumption by imposing rules set by capitalist representatives, such as the World Trade Organization, or WTO, to protect the intellectual property rights of giant corporations. These multinational corporations from imperialist countries, such as Monsanto and others, take the seeds of crops and other plants cultivated and improved upon by many generations of peasants and genetically modify them to claim them as private property protected by the WTO's intellectual property rights. Similarly, large international pharmaceutical companies take ancient traditional medical remedies used by indigenous people and turn them into patent-protected profit-making commodities. These international corporations take what used to belong to the commons, shared by all people in their communities for thousands of years, and turn it into privately owned, monopolized profit-making commodities. The consequence has been tens and even hundreds of millions of peasants in colonial and semi-colonial countries losing their ability to use their own seeds to produce food and medicine for survival. The insatiable need for capital to expand has led to overproduction that overtills the land, overgrazes the pastures, overfishes the rivers and sea, exhausts the planet's resources, and unleashes fatal amounts of chemicals and waste into the ground, air, and water, causing critical damage to the earth and people's health. Policies carried out by the representatives of monopoly capital are destructive and brutal. The latest neoliberal restructuring swept away all the barriers for its global expansion, causing more and more people to realize that they must fight back if they do not want to be swallowed alive by ever more powerful monopoly capital. In addition to brutal political and economic oppression, there have also been seemingly endless wars. In order to maintain its hegemony, the United States has used its superior military power to impose wars on relatively defenseless nations and peoples. The destruction caused by these endless wars has gone far beyond the previous two world wars. I think we have again arrived to the point where Frederick Engels concluded, quote, If the whole of modern society is not to perish, a revolution in the mode of production and distribution must take place, unquote. And what Luxembourg reminded us a hundred years ago when she wrote, quote, Bourgeois society stands at the crossroad, either transition to socialism or regression into barbarism, unquote. Revolutionaries heeded these warnings. They did not sit idly by waiting for capitalism to destroy them. Revolutionaries in Russia under Lenin's leadership took up arms and won the first nationwide socialist revolution. The 1917 Russian Revolution and the 1949 Chinese Revolution were the two most important historical events in the 20th century.
The Cuban Revolution succeeded in 1959, and though it was smaller in scale, it had significant influence especially in Latin American countries. These heroic revolutions were all led by communist parties, the vanguard of the proletariat. Now another hundred years later, the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution have both been defeated. The Communist Party in the USSR embarked on revisionism in 1956, and the Communist Party in China initiated capitalist reform in 1978. In 2018, 100 years after Luxembourg's warning to modern society, all of humankind is again facing total destruction. What are we to do? We have the choice of either burying our heads in the sand and accepting the verdict of leading capitalist propaganda that socialism has failed and capitalism has won, thus signaling the end of history. Or we can choose socialism over barbarism like our courageous forebears in 1917 and 1949 and many of our contemporaries today. They chose to struggle against capitalism and for socialism. The current reality could not be clearer, and the choice is entirely ours. On the one hand, we are in a better position than revolutionaries before our time, because they were able to prove that armed struggle with the goal of achieving communism could be won. The dictatorship of the proletariat was proven possible. This has given us tremendous confidence and optimism. On the other hand, at some point on the road of socialist development, revisionists seize political power, and reverse the development from socialism to capitalism. There have been some analyses of why and how socialist development was aborted. However, these explanations have not satisfied critics who think that socialism may look good on paper, but that it is incompatible with human nature. According to them, pointing to the many Communist Party officials who enrich themselves by robbing the wealth from the working masses, once people possess power, they are invariably corrupted. In other words, former revolutionaries turned into new exploiters and oppressors. We certainly cannot deny that corruption happened countless times in socialist countries. However, there were many more examples of powerful Communist Party members who sacrificed themselves, some with their lives, to advance the interests of the people toward their common goal of communism. The statement of, quote, power corrupts, unquote, is not a statement of truth. Human nature is not the problem behind corruption, but the abuse of power is. Although the concept of, quote, power corrupts, unquote, has had a long history among the left, in the recent years, where the anarchist movements are strong, mainly in imperialist countries, the fear of power itself has also become more prevalent. Such fear has rendered the left impotent in their struggle against the centrally organized and highly concentrated power of capital. In many left organizations in these countries, power is considered too concentrated unless it is shared equally among all of its members. The leaders, if there are any, should only be allowed to make decisions when they are based on the consensus of all members in the group. While it is true that abuses occur in organizations with only centralism without democracy, it is equally true that an organization is rendered totally powerless if no one is permitted to lead for fear of the concentration of power. The result has been that such, quote, horizontally organized, unquote, bodies cannot generate leadership to plan for the long term 
in their fight against powerful capital. These organizations often denigrate to the point where members engage in endless debates and only at the level of tactics. If there had not been centralism, there could not have been any socialist revolution or any socialist development. That said, centralism without democracy indeed bred abuses in former socialist countries. Therefore, the question is not, quote, how power corrupts, unquote, but, quote, how corrupting power can be checked and corrected, unquote. The reality we face today is that after 100 years, the two major and several smaller scaled attempts to build a new socialist mode of production and distribution with the goal of reaching communism were aborted. Historically, achievement in human development has always been a continuation of contributions made by successive generations. On the road of historical progression, there will always be advances and retreats. Revolutionaries in our current era need to take the progress and defeats toward the goal of communism as precious lessons learned. We are fortunate because we have not only inherited the wealth of revolutionary theory by Marx, Lenin, and Mao, we have also inherited the concrete experiences of building a socialist society in the Soviet Union from 1917 to 1956, and in China from 1949 to 1978, as well as their subsequent defeats. Such a wealth of knowledge accumulated by the lives and deaths of past revolutionaries has been passed on to us, allowing us to study and understand how they succeeded, what their accomplishments were, what challenges they faced, and how and why they were eventually defeated. In the following sections, I present an analysis of Chinese socialist revolution and socialist development by positing several questions and then attempting to answer them. I chose this format because, from my observation, revolutionaries in general, and Maoists in particular, have formulated these questions and are searching for answers. In this presentation, I hope to analyze the achievements of China's socialist development, as well as the difficulties and challenges the Chinese revolutionaries faced when building a new society that fundamentally changed the economic base and the superstructure. Maoists today rightfully regard the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution as the most important event in the Chinese Revolution. Quote, bombarding the headquarters, unquote, undoubtedly ignited the revolutionary passion and enthusiasm of the Chinese people, especially in young people, as well as revolutionaries in the rest of the world. However, it is just if not more important to have a deeper understanding of what the Cultural Revolution in China was trying to defend. Without the Cultural Revolution, the counter-revolutionaries would have been able to carry out their capitalist reversal in 1966 instead of 1978. If that had been the case, all of the socialist programs put in place during the Cultural Revolution, such as changes made in industrial organization, in education and health, in arts and culture, and practicing democracy and much more, would have not been put into practice. Moreover, all the basic and concrete progress made before 1966 in the economic base and in the superstructure for socialist development would have been smashed, not during the years since 1978, but more than a decade earlier. What I would like to emphasize here is, when revolutionaries decide to choose socialism over barbarism, and when they struggle against capitalism and for socialism, we need to have a deep, in concrete understanding 
of what socialism is. Simply put, how and in what way socialism is the antithesis of capitalism. Question 1. Karl Marx anticipated that socialist revolution was likely to occur first in countries where capitalism had reached a more advanced stage. Why did socialist revolution occur first in Russia, and then in China, where capitalism was only in the early stage of development? As the title of his most important work suggests, Capital Volume 1, A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, the focus of Karl Marx's analysis was on capitalist production. From his analysis, he foresaw that the proletariat in countries where capitalism had developed would lead the socialist revolution. At a commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the Communist Manifesto, Ellen Mikesons Wood, then editor of the Monthly Review, offered her explanation of the historic, quote, failures, unquote, of socialism. Wood's premise was that socialism has failed because attempts were not made, quote, in the kind of society that Marx regarded as the right foundation for socialist transformation, unquote. It is true that Marx did not anticipate that socialist revolution would occur in Russia, where capitalism was only in the early stage of development, because he did not foresee the emergence of imperialism, which changed the revolutionary situation in the world. In imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, Lenin made clear the opportunity existed objectively for countries at the weakest links of the world imperialist system to make socialist revolution even if capitalism in these countries was still in an early stage of development. Imperialist countries fought furiously to prevent colonial and semi-colonial countries from developing capitalism so that they could continue pillaging resources from them for the raw materials they needed for industrialization. Had less developed countries begun to develop capitalism independently, advanced capitalist countries would have lost access to raw materials as well as export markets for their surplus capital, and surplus products. Therefore, imperialist countries used brute force to suppress struggles for national liberation and development around the world. Even after former colonies gained their independence in the 19th and 20th centuries, today they still do not have political sovereignty. Without political sovereignty, they have been denied economic sovereignty, i.e. the freedom to use their own resources to develop their own countries. The lack of independent capitalist development in these countries resulted in a weak national bourgeois class. The lack of independent capitalist development and a weak national bourgeoisie are opposite sides of the same coin. A weak national bourgeoisie means that this class is too weak to fend off the invasion of foreign capital, and so weak politically that they need the support of the domestic landowning class to rule nationally. This is the reason why many of these countries have not been able to carry out genuine land reform to end feudalism. In other words, the national bourgeoisie is not strong enough to lead a democratic revolution, a democratic revolution necessary for the development of capitalism. The Russian Revolution in 1917 demonstrated that the proletariat could successfully launch a socialist revolution. It proved to the world that the working class did not need to wait for the bourgeoisie to complete the democratic revolution and to develop capitalism before they liberated themselves and charted their own path of development. In the famous Chinese revolutionary drama, The East is Red, an announcer gives an historical account of the Chinese revolution, exclaiming, quote, The October Revolution sent us the teaching of Marx and Lenin, 
follow the Russians, this is our way, unquote. It's difficult to emphasize enough how much the Russian Revolution inspired working people of the world. The Chinese people under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party followed the heroic example set by the Russian revolutionaries. In January 1940, in the midst of defending China against the Japanese imperialist invasion, Mao wrote on new democracy. In this essay, Mao further elaborated on the meaning and importance of a new democratic revolution led by the proletariat. Mao analyzed the historical characteristics of China and how China's revolution would be an integral part of the world revolution. Mao asked, quote, should China follow the West through the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, unquote? He opposed this idea, writing, quote, In the first place, international capitalism or imperialism will not permit the establishment in China of a capitalist society under a bourgeois dictatorship. Indeed, the history of modern China is a history of imperialist aggression, of imperialist opposition to China's independence, and to her development of capitalism, unquote. Mao illustrated, after the victory of the First Socialist Revolution, that the international situation had become a struggle between capitalism and socialism, in which capitalism was in decline and socialism was on the rise. Mao further asserted that socialism would not permit the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie in China. He said that all the imperialist powers in the world were China's enemies, and that China could not possibly gain its independence without the assistance of socialist countries and the international proletariat, meaning the Soviet Union and the proletariat in Japan, Britain, the United States, France, Germany, Italy, and other countries, through their struggle against capitalism. Today, socialist countries no longer exist, but the truth remains that the success of any socialist revolution in any country requires the support and participation of the international proletariat in all countries. As monopoly capital from different capitalist countries unites to pursue its common interests, the solidarity of international working people is a necessity now more than ever. During the Chinese Revolution, the Chinese Communist Party, vanguard of the proletariat, was very clear from the beginning that the proletariat-led new democratic revolution would proceed to a socialist revolution with the goal of reaching communism. After the 1949 victory, the new Chinese government seized the assets of the Kuomintang and confiscated assets of foreign capitalists and compradors. Together, these assets accounted for 80% of China's total assets. The remaining 20% consisted of factories and commercial enterprises owned by the national bourgeoisie. In 1949, the principal contradiction in Chinese society was between the landowning class and the vast majority of the Chinese people. After land reform was completed in 1953, the principal contradiction changed to one between the capitalists who still owned the factories and other commercial enterprises in the proletariat. By 1956, through different programs, assets in these privately owned enterprises were successfully transferred to the state. Almost 70 years after the Chinese Revolution, it has become even more obvious that colonial and semi-colonial countries do not have any chance to develop capitalism independent of the imperialist countries. Starting in the 1980s, the bourgeoisie in these countries began to realize that their dreams to develop their own independent capitalism would never be realized. 
So they sold the interests of their countries to international monopoly capital and took a cut in the profits. There may still be a few of them stubbornly fighting on. However, in today's imperialism, the national bourgeoisie is a contradictory and antiquated concept. Working masses in these countries can only rely on themselves for the development of their countries with the goal of improving their lives and building a better society for their future. Revolutionaries in these countries have no other choice but to organize and be part of the worldwide socialist revolution. Question 2. How do we determine if China's development from 1956 to 1978 was socialist? In 1956, the ownership of the means of production in China's industrial enterprises was transferred to the state. At the conclusion of land reform in 1953, the collectivization of agriculture began and people's communes were formed in 1958. According to the analysis my co-author Deng Wan Su and I made in Rethinking Socialism, this transfer of ownership by itself was not an indication that China had begun to be socialist. Whether China proceeded to develop socialism or capitalism depended on what happened after the means of production were transferred to the state and after the formation of the people's communes. Therefore, an account of concrete policies carried out after 1956 is necessary. From 1956 to 1976, the CCP pushed forward concrete policies that fundamentally changed the relations of production in both China's industrial and agricultural sectors, making them socialist. There were also basic changes in the superstructure. Fundamental changes in the relations of production, the ownership and control in the means of production, and fundamental changes in the superstructure, political, ideological, and cultural are basic yardsticks to determine whether a society is capitalist or socialist, as explained below. Question 2. A. How were the relations of production changed in the state-owned industrial sector? A set of concrete policies fundamentally changed the relations of production in the state-owned industrial enterprises. 1. Phasing out commodity production, and 2. Phasing out labor power as a commodity. Phasing out commodity production in state-owned enterprises. During China's socialist transition, the state decided what and how much each industrial enterprise produced according to a national plan, which was based on the current and future needs of the people in the country. The state decided on investment plans to replace old machinery slash equipment and additional investment for expanded production. The state also provided the enterprise raw materials, machinery and equipment at predetermined prices, and it, quote, purchased, unquote, the outputs produced also at predetermined prices. The individual enterprise handed over any, quote, excess revenue, unquote, over its, quote, expenditures, unquote, to the state. The amount of this, quote, excess revenue, unquote, was not considered, quote, profit, unquote, because the price of its inputs and outputs were artificially set by the state. This, quote, excess revenue, unquote, was not used as an indicator to judge how well the enterprise was run. The measure used to judge the efficiency of the enterprise was a comparison with past records, whether the enterprise produced more and better outputs at a faster rate, and if they managed to conserve more resources. 
Thus, quote, profit, unquote, and quote, loss, unquote, important indicators in a capitalist economy cease to have any meaning. This was the method by which state-owned enterprises were divorced from profit maximization. When commodity production was being phased out of the state sector, the law of value, equal value exchange, lost its function to regulate the economy. In a capitalist economy, market prices serve the function of regulating supply and demand, and prices have the function of directing what to produce and how resources are allocated. In a capitalist society, resources go to where production yields the highest rates of profit. When the state sector was phasing out commodity production in socialist China, the law of value ceased to direct the resources to different kinds of production. Instead, the economic plan did. The economic plan made it possible to change the purpose of production from profit maximization to producing use value for the satisfaction of the needs of the people and the needs of the country, both current and future needs. In socialist China, the economic plan determined how resources were allocated for the production of consumer goods such as food, clothing, healthcare and housing, etc., or for the production of producer goods such as machinery, equipment, infrastructure, and buildings. The economic plan had to be carefully and deliberately considered to balance allocating very scarce resources between producing consumer goods, which satisfied the current needs of the population, and investment goods, which increased the capacity for future production. Moreover, among different kinds of consumer goods, preference was given to the most urgently needed consumer goods, such as food, clean drinking water, clothing and housing, as well as basic services, such as healthcare and education, etc. In the economic plan, these basic products and services were priced artificially low so all urban residents could afford to buy them. On the other hand, in the early stage of development, other consumer products, such as wristwatches, were considered, quote, luxury, unquote, items, so the price for watches was set artificially high, not reflecting the cost of production, at, say, 100 RMB. At this price, it took the average income worker a couple of years to save enough money to buy a watch. In an early stage of development, only small amounts of resources were allocated to produce goods like watches. Among producer goods, heavy industry that produced machinery and equipment was given high priority because it was the foundation of industrialization. Heavy industry produced machinery for light industries such as textiles. However, during industrialization in the Soviet Union, too much emphasis was placed on heavy industry at the expense of light industry and agriculture, and the result was shortages of food and other consumer goods. China learned from the experiences of the Soviet Union and strove not to repeat its mistakes. Mao wrote on the Ten Major Relationships in 1956 when industrialization just began. The first major relationship was the relationship between heavy industry and light industry and between industry and agriculture. Here, Mao wrote, quote, The emphasis in our country's construction is on heavy industry. The production of means of production must be given priority, unquote. But later in the next paragraph, Mao cautioned that China should not repeat the USSR's and Eastern European countries' mistake of placing a, quote, lopsided, unquote, stress on heavy industry at the neglect of agriculture and light industry, resulting in a shortage of goods and unstable currency. 
He advocated for economic planning that carefully considered the balance between industry and agriculture, as well as between heavy industry and light industry. Of course, in drawing up the massive economic plan for the entire country, people made mistakes. It was a very complicated endeavor encompassing many sectors of the economy and the relationships between these sectors. However, the damage of those mistakes could be minimized if they were quickly discovered and corrected. A successful economic plan took constant adjustments and readjustments, and people became more skilled by drawing on past experiences. Capitalist propaganda relentlessly claims that relying on the blind forces of the market achieves better results compared to a carefully and consciously planned economy. This is simply untrue. Only under socialism do we move away from producing commodities for the sake of maximizing profits. When we contrast the planned economy with the capitalist market economy, we can understand the superiority of socialism. This paper explains the irrational and disastrous results of capitalist economy dictated by the blind forces of the market, where production of commodities is based on profit maximization. Even more acute in the age of imperialism, the last stage of capitalism. In more recent decades, damage done to colonial and semi-colonial country economies have become even more severe after international monopoly capital broke down all barriers and expanded to every corner of the world. After their economies were forcibly integrated into the domain where international monopoly capital dominated, they lost control over their resources. The law of value applied in this domain has taken away the people's rights to simply live. Here are some concrete examples. We see many cities in the world, even cities in poor countries, where modern high-rises and six-lane highways exist side-by-side -side with urban slums occupied by homeless people living in deplorable conditions. These countries often lack the resources to build the most essential infrastructure, such as water purifying plants, because their first priority is to use a large percentage of its income to pay the interest on debts they owe to foreign banks and international financial institutions. Moreover, in the era of neoliberalism, these countries have been forced to agree to dismantle any barriers to foreign investment. Some of the very first foreign investments that rushed in were often large soda pop companies such as Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, because the amount of investment to build bottling plants is very low, while the profits are very high. These giant U.S. soda pop companies simply bottle sugar water with their secret formula, protected by WTO patent rights, and wait for the profits to roll in. The poor who cannot afford to buy soda or bottled water have to drink contaminated water and suffer many waterborne diseases because their governments don't have the funds to build water treatment plants. Is the market mechanism really a rational way to allocate a country's resources when people are being denied clean water while large multinationals are reaping high profits? Wouldn't people have been better off if their economy had been planned and building water treatment plants was given top priority? There are many examples to show that relying on the market forces has produced detrimental results for people in colonial and semi-colonial countries suffering from high unemployment and low income. Their rulers have surrendered to the power of global monopoly capital and bought the lie that in today's globalized world, a country can find its niche in the international market based on its comparative advantages and then just export commodities to become prosperous. The result is that many countries produce similar products, and the export prices of these products plummet. 
One example is when the global market was flooded a few years ago with exported watches, with China in the lead. Prices of watches became ridiculously low. Once someone in the United States showed me his watch collection, 100 watches of different styles and colors displayed in a very large fancy case. He proudly boasted that his collection did not cost him very much. Middle-income people in imperialist countries who are not rich enough to own a fleet of expensive cars or a fancy big house can now afford a collection of watches. A watch collection is a clear case of commodity fetish, where the watch as a commodity is completely divorced from its use value, which is to tell time. This clear case demonstrates how the allocation of resources is distorted in imperialism. When following international market forces, too many colonial and semi-colonial countries over-allocate their resources to produce commodities for export, so that people in imperialist countries can collect them at a low cost to satisfy their fetishes, and under-allocate resources to produce goods that their people urgently need, such as food, clean water, basic health, education, and housing. Moreover, the market is irrational when it comes to critical decisions about new investment and technological change. A business in a capitalist economy must constantly expand in order to maintain or increase its market share. If a business fails to do so and its market share shrinks, at some point it has to declare bankruptcy. Therefore, constant expansion is a necessity in the world of business under capitalism. Expanding a business means constantly developing new products, adopting new technology, and investing in new production plants. The result is often that factories are abandoned while they are still in good condition and could be used to produce useful products. Capitalist propaganda has us believe that constant and mindless phasing out and discarding of old products, old technology, and old plants at the speed required by the market is a sign of progress. Actually, the exact opposite is true. Only when we as humans take control of our own destinies can we rationally and consciously make decisions about when to replace old plants with new ones by weighing the usefulness of the old plant, the resources needed to produce new plants, and the consequences to the environment when shutting down the old ones. Here is a concrete example of how a real business, Intel, a major high-tech firm that makes computer chips, under capitalism makes decisions about when to invest in plants to make new products. In 1980, Intel launched a new facility in Rio Rancho, New Mexico, to produce the new Pentium 5 chip. Intel President Andy Grove revealed they were already working on several newer generations of chips to replace the Pentium 5. Grove said, quote, This is what we do. We eat our children and do it faster and faster. That is how we keep our lead, unquote. All high-tech businesses have adopted the same strategy. When the iPhone first came out, Apple proudly unveiled its innovative new product. But Apple soon had to render the first iPhone obsolete by putting out the iPhones 2, 3, 4, etc. Apple is now selling the iPhone 10. Propaganda for capitalism defends such waste by saying, quote, planned obsolescence is the hallmark of progress, unquote. In addition to, quote, planned obsolescence, unquote, that continuously squanders the Earth's precious resources, there is the added destruction brought upon by repeated business cycles. During the upturn phase of the cycle, businesses must prepare themselves for further expansion, so they feverishly add more productive capacity, knowing that this excess capacity will be destroyed when the economy goes south.
since the later part of the 20th century, the business cycle has become shorter due to the more speculative nature of investment. The destructive power of capital on the environment multiplied in the era of neoliberalism when colonial and semi-colonial countries accepted the rules set by global monopoly capital, removing all barriers for foreign capital to flood in freely. They competed with one another to provide global monopoly capital with the most incentives by keeping their wages low and working conditions flexible, and by lowering taxes and imposing the least stringent environmental regulations. In the mid-1990s, these incentives attracted large flows of foreign capital to Southeast Asian countries and littered these countries with new factories that produced similar cheap products, like clothing, shoes, toys, electronics, etc. The capitalist propaganda machine declared that an economic miracle had arrived in Asia and that the 21st century would be the, quote, Asian century, unquote. Then in 1997 through 98, a widespread economic crisis decimated these economies, and almost all of the newly built factories were idled. Paul Krugman, a bourgeois Nobel Prize winning economist, equated this economic crisis suffered by 660 million people in seven countries, which had produced a quarter of the world output, with the 1929 Great Depression in imperialist countries. The crisis started in Southeast Asia and spread to Russia, South Korea, then to Brazil and beyond, causing more suffering for additional hundreds of millions of people. The Latin American countries, which had suffered continuing crisis since the 1980s, plunged into deeper crisis extending from Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, to Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, Colombia, and Peru. We are compelled to ask, if this is not barbarism, what is? We can no longer afford the kind of progress that comes from, quote, planned obsolescence, unquote, or the waste and suffering brought by the capitalist business cycle. The amount of resources, fossil fuels, metals, plastic, and minerals required to make new products at a faster and faster rate dictated by the market, and then disposing of them soon after they are made, as well as the destruction brought by repeated capitalist crisis, is overwhelming the earth. As we carefully examine the last stage of capitalism, we find a seemingly unstoppable monstrous system sweeping the world by unleashed global monopoly capital, ruthlessly ripping apart the people, land, and environment. Imperialism immensely benefited monopoly capital, but it is devastating the majority of the world's population, exhausting its resources and destroying its natural environment. This kind of progress we do not want and cannot afford we are facing a well-documented environmental crisis unprecedented in human history. Capitalism, dictated by the will of capital for limitless expansion, is on a collision course with the limits of the planet where all of us reside. Socialism is the only kind of development that can stop the earth from destruction. During socialist construction in China, the economy did not depend on the whims of the capital for production and investment decisions and it did not suffer from the ups and downs of the business cycle. Decisions about new technology were not based on an obsession for market share, but were made rationally by carefully considering all relevant factors, including conserving resources, concern for the environment, and also for the value placed in the labor embedded in producing machinery and equipment. While the capitalist market always drives businesses without the newest technology out, socialist economy demonstrated that more enterprises with less advanced technology 
can coexist with those with more advanced technology as long as together they produce useful products for people. This is especially crucial for poor countries where capital is scarce and where foreign competition based on superior technology has made domestic industrialization almost impossible. Socialist development in China demonstrated that a less developed country can rely on its own resources and people to develop its economy. Development based on self-reliance was only possible with socialist development where the logic of capital no longer dominated. When state-owned industrial enterprises were phasing out commodity production, it was a fundamental and significant change toward the direction of communism. In that process, each state-owned enterprise was considered part of the whole, and they were under a unified accounting system. Therefore, instead of competing with one another, different enterprises in a certain industry cooperated with one another. For example, a technologically advanced steel enterprise helped build a new steel enterprise by providing it with a plant design, machinery and equipment, and even technical personnel. Experienced engineers in the old steel plant went to the newly built plant to consult, and or engineers in the new plants went to the more advanced plant for training. Since both the old plant and the new plant were parts of the same whole, the old plant did not consider the aid given to the new plant and, quote, expense, unquote. It was through cooperation that industrialization spread in socialist China from the East Coast and the Northeast, where industrialization was more advanced, to the more remote regions in the North and Northwest. There was actually a catchy phrase to describe this phenomenon, quote, an old hen laying eggs all over the place, unquote, meaning, in this example, that an older steel plant gave birth to dozens of new steel plants. It demonstrated that cooperation was far superior to competition. Phasing out labor power as a commodity. During China's socialist construction, labor power was in the process of being phased out as a commodity, something that could be bought and sold. This is an equally important characteristic of socialism that is fundamentally different from capitalism. The state established an eight-grade wage scale that it applied nationwide to all workers in state-owned enterprises. The wage scale was based on workers' skills and years of service with some adjustments for cost of living differences in different parts of the country. Wages of engineers with college degrees were higher, but as time went on, engineers' wages were lowered if they had received their college education after 1949 when the state paid for their college education expenses plus living allowances. During the socialist construction, state-owned enterprises received wage funds from the state to cover their total wage bill, plus the cost of providing benefits to workers, which included low-rent housing, subsidized food and utilities, basically free medical care, education, and other services. The transfer of wage funds from the state to workers via the enterprises removed the responsibility of cadres, in China, referred to as, quote, ganbu, unquote, literally translated as, quote, backbone personnel, unquote, in charge of the enterprises, to meet wage and benefit payments from the enterprise revenues. Managers in capitalist countries often lay off workers, reduce work hours, or cut worker benefits when the enterprise they manage fails to meet profit targets. Ganbu and state-owned enterprises had no such authority, because the state guaranteed workers' jobs by transferring the wage fund to cover wages and benefits. 
Transferring the wage fund directly from the state to the workers via the enterprise was the only way to guarantee permanent employment and the amount of wages and benefits workers received. It is important to look at the completely different perspective on workers' wages and benefits in a capitalist society versus a socialist society. In a capitalist society, the goal of production is to maximize profits. Profit in a capitalist enterprise is dependent on the surplus value extracted from the workers, so, therefore, the entire industrial organization is set up for production to run, quote, efficiently, unquote, to increase workers' surplus value. Higher wages and better benefits logically reduce the surplus value and serve as drags on profits, so they need to be kept as low as possible. On the other hand, in a socialist society, one of the most important goals of production is to improve people's material lives. Higher wages and better benefits are the very reasons to fulfill the purpose of production. In state-owned factories, in addition to managing matters related to production, the cadres or ganbu, in charge of different departments, also had the responsibility to oversee many aspects of workers' lives, including food, housing, utilities, nurseries and schools, from kindergarten sometimes all the way to high school, as well as recreation and organizing political study. Ganbu even served as a counselor slash social workers to resolve issues among family members and or co-workers. In other words, Ganbu paid great attention to all the aspects of workers' lives. If a Ganbu neglected this part of their responsibility or failed to handle these matters fairly, they would be criticized. Whether labor power is or is not a commodity is of critical importance. Marx spent the first volume of Capital explaining how the capitalist extracts surplus value from workers in the process of production. He analyzed how surplus value was realized in their profits when the product was sold. Marx explained how, unlike feudal society, exploitation takes place in capitalist society during the process of production where the capitalist buys labor power as a commodity. Therefore, we can only end exploitation by ending the buying and selling of labor power as a commodity. Whether labor power is or is not a commodity necessarily dictates how the laborer is treated. In a capitalist society, when labor power is a commodity, the laborer can be hired and fired at any time. As far as the capitalist is concerned, his only interest is to buy the labor power when needed and to stop buying it when there is no longer the need. The capitalist has no concern for the laborer. In contrast, in socialist China, a worker was guaranteed a job and livelihood, including retirement and medical care. In socialist society where labor power ceased to be a commodity, laborers were treated as the creators of wealth, both for the factory and for the whole society. This was the most important reason why workers were so highly respected in socialist China. Nowhere in the world during any historical period were workers ever accorded such respect and dignity. Moreover, when labor power ceased to be a commodity, the relationship between workers and machines changed fundamentally. Living labor commanded the machines, capital that contains dead labor, instead of the other way around. In the early days of capitalism, the Luddites destroyed machines because they believed that machines were their enemies that could make their jobs obsolete. On capitalist assembly lines, production workers cheer when the line breaks down. During socialist construction in China, machines were not treated as the enemy. Workers treated machines as valuable tools that helped them in production. 
Workers were proud when they mastered skills of how to use machines properly to produce the best products, paying great attention to maintaining machines, many going to check on the machines on their day off. Workers lived in industrial complexes within walking distance of the factories. Even though China's development between 1956 and 1978 was socialist, contradictions continued to exist within the industrial sector as well as between the economic base and the superstructure. When we say the state-owned industries were phasing out commodity production and phasing out labor power as a commodity, it did not mean the process of phasing out was completed. Actually, the process to phase out commodity production and labor power as a commodity takes a very long time. Even so, within a short period of two decades, from 1956 to 1978, we began to see how a socialist society operated qualitatively differently from a capitalist society. This will be further explored in the discussion about changes in the superstructure and the challenges China faced in developing socialism. Question 2b. How did the relations of production change in the collectively owned agricultural sector? Toward the end of land reform, two opposing views existed within the Chinese Communist Party on how to develop China's agriculture. The debate between these opposing views reflected the fundamental differences between Mao Zedong and Liu Shaoqi, and later Deng Xiaoping, on issues regarding how to develop a socialist economy. When the means of production in the industrial sector were transferred from the private sector to the state, members of the Chinese Communist Party were basically in agreement, even though some members, basically Liu and his followers, thought the transfer should have proceeded more slowly. However, when it came to the development of the agricultural sector, the difference between Mao and Liu was sharp and substantive. As far as Liu was concerned, after land reform and the transfer of the means of production in the industrial sector to the state, the principal contradiction in China was between the, quote, advanced social system, unquote, meaning the relations of production, and the, quote, backward social productive forces, unquote, as clearly expressed in the resolution of the Eighth National Congress of the CCP in 1956. Therefore, according to Liu, and later Deng, the main task of the CCP was to devote itself to the development of the productive forces. Mao, on the other hand, believed that the social system, the relations of production and the superstructure, was far from being advanced, and that contradictions still existed within the economic base, as well as between the economic base and the superstructure. These philosophical differences between Mao and Liu caused them to view China's socialist development from entirely different perspectives. Mao was a firm believer in Marxist dialectical materialism. He saw that in the contradiction between the productive forces and the relations of production, the productive forces are the principal aspect. In the contradiction between theory and practice, practice is the principal aspect. In the contradiction between the economic base and the superstructure, the economic base is the principal aspect. However, Mao also believed that under certain conditions, such aspects as the relations of production, theory and superstructure, could come to the fore to play the principal and decisive role. 
Mao explained that when people regard these respective positions, productive forces versus relations of production, theory versus practice, and economic base versus superstructure, as fixed instead of changeable in their respective positions, they hold a mechanical materialist point of view, not a dialectical materialist one. The mechanical materialists believe that under no circumstances could the relations of production, theory, or superstructure become the dominant aspect of the contradiction. Mao did not hold the mechanical materialist point of view. He believed that under certain conditions the productive forces and relations of production could exchange places and the relations of production could play the dominant role in making change. For example, when the relations of production remain unchanged for a long time, their productive forces can become stagnant and stop developing unless a change in the relations of production, such as a revolution, occurs. In that case, the relations of production can play the principal and decisive role. Mao further explained that while it is true that in the contradiction between the superstructure and economic base, the economic base is the principal aspect, under certain conditions, the superstructure can become the principal aspect. During a revolution, the relations of production are changed by people actively engaged in class struggle, political, ideological, and cultural struggle in the sphere of the superstructure, which can play the leading role in changing the relations of production. Dialectical materialism was fundamental to Mao's analysis of social change. It played the most important role in constructing his strategy to win the long revolutionary war, and it also played the most important role in shaping his strategy on political and economic development during the socialist transition. In order for feudal ideology to lose its influence, its material base of feudal land tenure had to be destroyed. However, even when land reform ended the feudal land tenure system, Mao saw that feudal ideology had staying power. If left unchallenged, it could easily lodge itself in the new economic base. Therefore, without careful ideological work to get rid of feudal ideology, it could prevent the new economic base from taking root. Mao regarded land reform not just as a way to redistribute land to the peasants, but also as a social movement to propagate new ideology, one that explained why exploitation was wrong and that it was unjust for landlords to forcefully take the product of the peasants' labor. When the peasants adopted this new way of thinking, they became determined and empowered to right past wrongs and were energized to complete land reform and engage in movements to collectivize agriculture. Land reform in the newly liberated areas in China's countryside from 1949 through 1952 gave hundreds of millions of peasants a plot of their own land for the first time in their lives. Although land holdings averaged only 0.2 hectares per capita, peasants cultivated their newly possessed land with great enthusiasm. The output of both grain and cotton went up rapidly between 1949 and 1952. By 1953, however, grain production became stagnant and cotton production decreased. After 100 years of destruction from wars and landlord neglect, China's natural environment for agriculture was very fragile, and arable land was scarce and infertile. Agricultural infrastructure such as irrigation was in total ruin. Before liberation, natural disasters, 
such as drought and flood, were widespread, and famine was a common occurrence. After land reform was completed in 1953, in addition to owning very small plots of poor quality land, the majority of peasants, more than 300 million, owned very few productive tools. Among the poor and lower middle peasant households, 60 to 70% of China's peasantry, many did not even own a plow, let alone other farm tools or draft animals. Without farm tools, enthusiasm alone could not continue to increase production. Moreover, in 1953 and 1954, floods and drought affected large areas of farmland. Individual peasants were defenseless against such natural disasters. Before liberation, when natural disasters hit, many peasants were forced to migrate to neighboring provinces just to survive. After land reform, when the health conditions of almost all peasants were still very poor, families were often devastated by illness or the death of a family member. Some farm households were also without any productive labor when their loved ones sacrificed their lives during the war against Japan and or the wars against the Kuomintang. When peasant families faced any of these problems, they had to borrow money. Facing debts at usurious interest rates, some peasants were forced to sell their newly acquired land. Before the cooperative movement began, land sales and private borrowing had begun to rise, as had the number of peasants who hired themselves out as farmhands. Thus, although land reform resolved the principal contradiction between peasants and landlords, it could not solve the urgent need to increase production to improve the majority of peasants' material conditions. The new situation proved small-scale subsistence farming was not a stable situation or a viable solution for agricultural development. The farming situation in China at that time was very similar to situations in many colonial and semi-colonial countries in the world today. It was obvious that agricultural production had to be modernized and the scale of production increased. In China after land reform, the struggle surrounding agricultural development intensified. The main struggle was not whether agricultural production needed to increase in scale and be modernized. The struggle was over how to achieve it. In other words, mechanization versus collectivization, which should come first. Mao believed that peasants could be organized to join their small pieces of land together and share their limited productive tools to first increase agricultural output and then to make improvements in land and build infrastructure to prepare the land for mechanization and modernization. Liu Shaoqi, on the other hand, believed that after land reform, further changes in the relations of production were unnecessary and all efforts should be devoted to the development of productive forces. Liu believed that only when China could produce enough steel and acquire the technology to manufacture tractors and other agricultural machinery and equipment would the conditions exist for the modernization of agricultural production. With the mechanical materialist perspective, productive forces are always the dominant aspect in the contradiction between productive forces and relations of production. The relations of production can never become the dominant aspect. From that point of view, that relationship is fixed, which is why Liu insisted that mechanization had to come first. Mao, on the other hand, believed that further changes in the relations of production, meaning collectivization, 
had become the principal aspect of the contradiction and that changing it would help develop productive forces. Mao saw the energy and the enthusiasm of the Chinese working people as the source for economic development. He recognized that when peasants were mobilized and their consciousness raised to a higher level, they created the possibility of organizing production on a scale larger than a single farm household. He saw that ideology, in the sphere of superstructure, could play a major role in changing the relations of production from privately owning and farming a small piece of land to collectivization. Mao won the first major debate within the Chinese Communist Party on how to develop China's agriculture. Collectivization began soon after land reform, initially by organizing mutual aid teams in production, and then elementary co-ops and advanced co-ops, and finally the formation of communes in 1958. One of the most challenging problems in China's agriculture historically and currently is the lack of arable land. China has less than 9% of the world's arable land, but it has to produce food and other agricultural products for 22% of the world's population. On a per capita land basis, its arable land is just over 1 MU, or 0.0827 hectares. 1 MU equals 0.067 HA, about one-third of the world's average. At the conclusion of the Chinese Revolutionary War, Western experts never expected that China would ever be able to feed its people. With such limited arable land, the only way to increase production was through intensive cultivation to increase the yield per cultivated area. Between 1952 and 1978, China was able to double crop yields per unit of arable land through the collectivization of agriculture. Collectivization of agriculture began at the conclusion of land reform. It started with mutual aid teams. Several, 20 or more peasant households were organized to share their tools and labor in production. That proved not to be so difficult because when farm tools and labor were more fully utilized, output increased and every family benefited. The next step in agricultural collectivization was the formation of elementary cooperatives, where peasant households joined their land and productive tools together in farm production but still retain the ownership of their tools. That ownership entitled peasant households that owned them to claim shares of output in addition to the shares each household received according to the amount of the labor they contributed. At this stage of organizing, it became more complicated because the peasants' decision to join or not join depended on their potential gains. Mao saw that in order for the co-ops to be on solid ground, peasant participation had to be on a voluntary basis. The policy of the CCP was to encourage peasants to join the cooperatives, but respect their decision to go it alone. The poor and lower middle peasants, more than 65 through 70 percent of all peasants, who owned a small plot of land but owned very few farm tools, had little chance to make it on their own. They were the staunchest supporters of co-ops. The rich and some upper-middle peasants who had owned larger plots of land and a few farm tools could hire workers and increase production, so they opposed joining the co-ops. The middle peasants took a, quote, wait-and-see, unquote, attitude to see how the co-ops fared. The co-ops increasing output to win over the middle peasants was critical to the success of the co-op movement. Eventually, the middle peasants were won over and the rich peasants had no choice but to join however reluctantly, 
because they could no longer hire anyone to work for them. Organizing peasants into cooperatives was not an easy task. For one thing, peasants in China had never experienced working cooperatively together. Peasants did not know what it would be like. When the cooperative movements were spreading throughout the countryside, there was great worry about whether the co-ops could increase production and whether the increases could be sustained. There were cases, though only a very small minority, where crop production decreased and organizing efforts failed. Credit for the co-op movement's success has to be given to CCP policy to rely on the poor peasants and to win over the middle peasants. Credit should also be given to the majority of party cadres who had just finished fighting the war and knew next to nothing about organizing co-ops. But these cadres were mostly from the poor peasant families, and they keenly understood their struggles and hopes for a better life. They trusted the party based on what they witnessed during the Revolutionary War and the land reform it implemented. They worked tirelessly and wholeheartedly to support the party and successfully completed the collectivization of agriculture. After the elementary co-ops, the next step was the formation of advanced co-ops. As William Hinton, well-known author of many books and articles about China's land reform and collectivization, pointed out in Shenfan, when production began to increase after the formation of the elementary co-ops, it became obvious that most of the increases were due to more intensive labor rather than the use of farm tools and implements. The majority of team members began to resent the fact that the tool owners continued to draw larger amounts of the co-op's rising income. The issue of how much in dividends should be paid to the owners of productive tools became more complex and divisive. The solution was to move forward to advanced cooperatives where the co-ops bought the productive tools from their owners with a one-time payment according to negotiated prices. This was how co-ops progressed from elementary level to advanced level. As their incomes increased, the advanced cooperatives were able to buy more farm equipment with funds accumulated from their rising income. From that point on in China's countryside, income was distributed only according to the amount of labor each farm worker contributed. Farm tools or capital ceased to claim a share of the total income. The collectivization of agriculture was completed in 1958 with the formation of the communes. The communes had a three-tier ownership system, communes, production brigades, and production teams. In 1962, production teams consisted of 15 to 30 farm households, averaging 24.9 families. Production brigades, the size of a village, averaged 7.9 production teams. Communes, the size of a county, averaged 9.4 production brigades. Each commune administered agricultural and later industrial production, commerce, education, social welfare, and self-defense with its own militia. The communes also managed their own finances and were responsible for collecting and paying taxes to the state, an accumulation fund for investment, seeds, new farm tools, and or building infrastructure, and a welfare fund, medical care, education, care for the elderly and the needy, for all commune members. As the productive forces developed, communes used their accumulation funds to build large-scale irrigation and drainage systems, roads, hospitals, 
and purchase large agricultural instruments. By the late 1960s, rural industrialization began and communes also owned factories. Production brigades built and owned factories, large agricultural machinery, milling stations, animal-slash-poultry farms, sewing stations, and other facilities. Brigade members shared the use of these facilities. Production teams owned land and small agricultural instruments. Each team functioned as a basic accounting unit. Team members elected their team leader, who was in charge of production and distribution, but continued to do farm work with the other team members. After paying taxes to the state via the commune, they made payments to the commune for the accumulation and welfare funds. At harvest time, the team distributed quota grain to its members based on age and the physical intensity of their labor. Then the rest of its income was distributed to team members according to the amount of work points each member earned during the year. One day of labor earned a minimum of about five work points to a maximum of 10, depending on the physical strength and skills required for the work. Team members' attitude towards work, such as willingness to help others, was also figured in when the worth of one's day's work was assessed. The evaluation and assessment of work points each person earned for a day of work was discussed, debated, and determined democratically by all team members. With the exception of some very poor communes, most people's lives in rural China improved dramatically. Each member of the production team received a quota of grain from their production team, even if they were too young, too old, or too sick to work. In addition to food grain, members received low-cost health care and low-cost education paid by the commune's welfare fund, which also covered major expenses for needy families. In addition, the state allocated funds to pay for education, teacher salaries and school construction, and the rural areas, as well as the cost of training teachers and health care personnel who worked in the countryside. The formation of communes fundamentally transformed the relations of production in the agricultural sector. The fundamental change in the relations of production was the main reason for the rapid development of productive forces in China's agriculture. By joining the land together and combining their tools, China's peasants were able to work collectively to improve the quality of the land and build agricultural infrastructure. They were able to accumulate more funds to buy more and better tools and worked extremely hard to improve the fertility of the land. When chemical fertilizer was not yet available, they saved, preserved, transported, and applied animal and human waste to improve the soil. When peasants were not busy planting and harvesting, they worked together to prepare the land for mechanization by joining pieces of land together, flattening the land, filling in the small creeks, and terracing the land in hilly areas. Large numbers of peasants were organized to work on land preservation and improvement projects. These projects accelerated in the late 1960s and the early 1970s when agricultural production was more stable and more labor could be diverted from farm work to construction. They also worked on land improvement and infrastructure construction projects during seasons when agricultural work was slack. As a result, Peasants in China extended their active working days from 119 a year in the 1950s to 250 a year in the 1970s. Alexander Eckstein, an expert on the Chinese economy, 
said the following about the farmland capital construction in his paper on the Chinese development model. More concretely, it indeed means reshaping the geographical features of an area to provide the physical conditions necessary for the application of an appropriate mix of other inputs, labor, machinery, fertilizer, and improved seed strains to bring about high and stable yields. This often requires squaring or terracing the land. At times it involves leveling mountains and transporting the soil manually in baskets for several kilometers to build a huge dam or to cover some areas with topsoil. In many areas, it means constructing underground drainage channels, reservoirs, canals, irrigation channels, pumping stations, and tube wells. In addition to all of the fieldwork and capital construction, China's agricultural production organized under the commune also facilitated advancement in agricultural technology. When agricultural development was stabilized in the mid-1960s, rural industrialization began in earnest from the energy created during the Great Leap Forward. By the mid-1960s, along with growth in agricultural production, Small-scale industries were set up by production brigades and communes in the countryside. For details of achievements in China's agriculture, see question 6 below.